Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and I'd like to welcome you to episode 60 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending July 7, 2017, the All-Star Weekend Edition. This week, Jay and I return for a wide-ranging discussion of some of the week's top compliance-related stories, including the U.S. charges top Colombian anti-graft prosecutor with money laundering, the U.S. Supreme Court may finally settle one of the fiercest debates arising from the Dodd-Frank Act. What is a whistleblower and when are they protected from corporate retaliation? We discuss Alstom obtaining an ISO 37001 certification and ask the question, does it mean anything? We review an article by Jacqueline Jager in Compliance Week about the benefits of the FCPA pilot program and how they are becoming clearer after two 2017 declinations. Jay reviews the head of the Federal Ethics Office resignation to his position uh, to the White House. At the nearly halfway mark of the baseball season with two games left, the Astros have the best record in the majors. I take a look at how they did this and why uh, in our session this week and in an article today in the FCPA Compliance Report. And finally, we discuss the release of the new ebook by the Everything Compliance Podcast Panel Plus One, Trump and Compliance, The First 100 Days. You can check it out on either this, uh, this website, www.fcpacompliancereport.com, where it's available for download free or on JD Supra. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for joining us this week on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, back with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 60 for the week ending July 7th, 2017, the All-Star Edition. Jay, welcome. Good morning, Tom. We're uh, back to our uh, normal schedule, 10 Central, 8 a.m., and it's uh, quiet here in the Rosen household as our uh, famed announcing pair, Millie and Michaela, are away at summer camp. Well, Jay, even though this was uh, the week of July 4th, uh, I thought it was uh, still had a lot of interesting um, commentary and events happened this week, so maybe we can just uh, jump right into it. Um, in the, um, uh, if not WTF, certainly the oops column, uh, we have a report from Dick Casson in the FCPA blog that the U.S. charges the top Columbia anti-graft prosecutor with money laundering. Uh, oops, uh, never good. Um, it was uh, interesting that the um, case involved uh, the Internal Revenue Service and uh, how um, the IRS worked with the Attorney General, uh, or, or rather the uh, DOJ, to uh, Bring this case forward. So, you know, when you have a top uh, anti-graph prosecutor charged with money laundering, it, it's really uh, not a good thing. Um, and so that uh, second thing was, um, I'm not quite sure what to make of this next one, but Alstom, uh, of all companies, has obtained the ISO 37001 certification for its anti-bribery management system. Um, the Alstom Chief Compliance Officer, uh, Michelle Julian, uh, put an article in the uh, FCPA blog about this. And I uh, obviously, Alstom has a very sordid history in FCPA enforcement, <clears throat> having now only one of the top FCPA enforcement actions against them 
uh, previously number two. Um, so we now have ISO 37001 certifications with ENI, whose two um, uh, current and former CEOs are under indictment for bribery. Now we have Alstom with a 37001 certification, and um, rumors are that uh, Walmart is seeking it. Uh, obviously, they're still under investigation. Um, in the F- uh, FCPA blog article, it said the uh, uh, certification focused on the adequacy of the company's anti-bribery system on something called a European scale, whatever that might be. Um, and uh, I think it's probably a good step from Austin to uh, to have this, but I really have some concerns about the certification process, Jay, of whether it's it's really just um, determining whether a company has a paper program in place. Uh, it really doesn't, I think, speak to the, uh, certainly does not speak to the um, requirements of the evaluation of corporate compliance programs that companies operationalize compliance. It may not even speak to what Wei Chin said she wanted that document to do, was to get companies to really think about the integrated approach of their compliance programs. So uh, kind of from your Mr. Monitor world, anything about the uh, certification that uh, troubles you or you think is positive? Well, I, I think that, you know, you had, um, I would say, a spirited debate earlier in the year with uh, Christy Grant Hart. And um, I, I think there's two ways to look at it. One way is it's great that a company wants to go out and get themselves certified. But if there are low hurdles to the certification, um, to your point, what does that mean in terms of operational opera- Operize, what's the word I want? Operationalizing. Operation. Thank you. Yes. Yes. What, you know, how, how does that, anyone can, uh, you know, it's, it's like writing away and getting a diploma from a university. So I think, um, you know, it's interesting if you have Alstom, which is part of GE, and if you have other large entities uh, deciding to use this as a meaningful yardstick, uh, maybe there's going to be something more to it. I still think that, you know, uh, the answer that we've given on a lot of things, ethics and compliance and FCPA wise this year is we're only at the all-star break, right? So we, we need to see if there's going to be more steam behind this. But I, I think, you know, um, your questions in the past is, does this standard have any teeth to it? Uh, so we'll just have to uh, kind of see where all this goes going forward. Uh, there were a couple of articles, Jay, that I thought were noteworthy in Compliance Week uh, by two of my Compliance Week colleagues, Jacqueline Jager and Joe Mont. Jacqueline wrote just an excellent piece on distilling lessons from the FCPA pilot program. And in this, uh, she really uh, took a look at all of the declinations, which had been uh, now I think we're up to five. Uh, uh, granted, since the uh, pilot program went into um, focus in uh, uh, or effect rather in April 2016, and um, the last two, or rather the uh, we touched on this last week, the CDM Smith case. This was a private company, U.S. Uh, not a public company. So we had the uh, uh, new category of declination with disgorgement, and this is. Um, I think a shift in how the department views declinations, and she quotes uh, Ryan Rolfson, 
partner at Ropes and Gray that if there's a reasonable determination of a crime and of some gain by the company, in some way or another, the company's going to have to disgorge that money. So that's what's really led to this uh, new category of declination with disgorgement. But she uh, she really goes through and uh, uh, contrasts or compares and contrasts the um, all of the declinations and points out that uh, you have to have uh, voluntary self-disclosure, thorough and comprehensive internal investigation, full cooperation, including the disclosure of all known relevant facts about the individuals involved, agreement to disgorge profits for the uh, alleged improper conduct, enhancements to your compliance program and internal controls, and full remediation. And then she uh, certainly lays out the uh, benefits to self-disclosure as well. So kudos to Jacqueline. It's an excellent article. Uh, I hope uh, that uh, you'll have a chance uh, to read that. Jill Mont wrote about something, Jay, that I think is going to be pretty significant for the compliance community, although not in the way that people think about or may, may initially see it. And that's a case that the U.S. Supreme Court has taken, which may finally settle one of the fiercest debates about the Dodd-Frank Act. And those, uh, a couple of questions Joe raises are, what is a whistleblower and when are they protected against corporate retaliation? It arises from two separate cases where a whistleblower um, uh, was retaliated against and one court of appeals held that if you don't uh, go to the SEC, you only report internally, you can't be protected by the SEC. And another court held the opposite. So we have uh, two decisions going in different ways, and it really turns on what protections a whistleblower has for a, a required or protected disclosure under both Sarbanes-Oxley and Dodd-Frank. So companies, uh, when uh, the SEC was interpreting the law, Jay, said that they wanted employees to uh, whistleblow internally first to give the companies an opportunity to remediate. And um, if the companies did not remediate or uh, uh, take uh, resolve the issue raised by the whistleblower, then the employee could go to the SEC. Uh, that position was rejected by the SEC. So... Um, what we've had is uh, employees who have whistleblown internally but have been alleged to have been retaliated against. So the if the court decides that um, you have to go to the SEC to get uh, whistleblower protection, I think that's going to end um, employees reporting internally. Uh, certainly uh, for serious conduct that would write, uh, go into the SEC, because they have no protections under uh, Dodd-Frank or Sarbanes-Oxley. So uh, unless a company is somehow committed and makes clear its commitment not to retaliate, but they'll have no legal protection. And my fear is if the court takes a very narrow reading of Dodd-Frank and says only the SEC can grant whistleblower protection against retaliation, uh, we're going to have people who do not report internally and go directly to the SEC. And that will, uh, I think, be a negative thing, Jay, for um, – corporate compliance programs, because you certainly want employees to speak up. You want them to raise their hand and say, hey, this doesn't look right to me. And if they can be retaliated against for doing that, um, uh, and their only recourse is to go to the SEC to get protection, uh, I don't think that's going to be a positive thing for compliance programs and the compliance practitioner, Jay. Well, you also have the recent case with uh, Uber, where uh, 
the SEC wasn't even a, a thought. And as we spoke about last week, you had one of the most powerful blog posts of uh, somebody going directly uh, to their own homepage and speaking about misconduct. And there's been far-reaching effects of that letter right uh, so far. Correct. Correct. So uh, this case, I think, is going to be very carefully watched. Uh, I really have no clue or no sense of which way the uh, Supreme Court will go. But if they uh, say that you do not have uh, protection under Dodd-Frank or Sarbanes-Oxley for reporting internally, and you only get it by going to the government, I, I just can't see that's a positive thing for compliance programs. So, Jay, we had, um, I think as most of our listeners would know, Wei Chen uh, has resigned from the department and has indeed left the Department of Justice, uh, largely because uh, she felt a conflict working under an administration that she viewed as corrupt. Uh, but now we've had the um, head of the Federal Ethics Office is going to step down. So why don't you tell us about that? Sure. And um I don't think that this is much of a surprise. Um, Walter Schaub is the leader of the federal government's ethics office, and there was a lot of uh, criticism of uh, Trump and his ethics disclosures or lack of disclosures. And this pretty much started um, very soon after Trump won the election in November. Um, Schaub was appointed by Obama and um, has been in the OGE, the Office of Government Ethics, for some time. Um, he has a, a very good track record, and he started on his own tweeting to the president, and what was really at stake was um, Trump's past business relationships and that Trump did not want to uh, take his assets and either sell them off or put them in a blind trust, and uh, there's been Lots of back and forth between the White House. There's been a lot of acrimonious uh, communication. And um, yesterday, Schaub delivered a letter to the president that said, uh, the great privilege and honor of my career has been to lead OGE staff and the community of ethics officials and the federal executive branch. They are committed to protecting the principle that public services of public trust requiring employees to place loyalty to the Constitution, the laws, and ethics principles above private gain. I am grateful for the efforts of this dedicated and patriotic assembly of public service, and I am proud to have served with them. So the um, president and a very uh, the White House in a very terse uh, statement uh, accepted uh, Schaub's uh, letter of resignation and thanked him for his service. So uh, I would say that taken uh, in conjunction with uh, Wei Chen's recent departure, uh, you know, this is a, a second person uh, in the government who is standing up and saying that uh, I cannot work here under these conditions because uh, ethics and compliance are just being thrown under the bus. So, um, you know, um, uh, it's, it's two for two in the last two weeks and uh, we'll have to see what starts happening. Uh, you know, there's a meeting going on uh, in Hamburg this morning between uh, Trump and Putin and, uh, there still is a lot on the table in terms of ethics and compliance and what's happening in the multiple investigations. So uh, this does not look good. And uh, the question is, is 
what can the Trump administration do to fix the optics? And probably the, the subtext that's behind it all is, do they even care about fixing the optics there? Uh, I think I would go with uh, B. So yeah, do you do you have any any thoughts on the significance of this? Uh, just uh, another um, government employee dealing with uh, compliance and ethics who didn't feel like they could work uh, under the current administration, and I think it clearly speaks to uh, where that where the administration views uh, business ethics. So uh, hopefully uh, it won't. N- negatively impact the U.S. business community uh, too much going forward. But uh, uh, as for the rest of uh, the U.S. government or government employees or indeed how we're viewed across the globe, uh, you only need to look at the top to see the tone. Right. So uh, on a much uh, more upbeat note uh, with uh, two games left before the All-Star break, Jay, I'm pleased to announce the Astros still have the best record in baseball. Uh, I wrote about today uh, how they achieved that uh, record. It was um, they are on track to be only the third team in the last 150 years to lead the majors in slugging percentage while having the lowest number of strikeouts. Uh, And they have come to the realization that contact is king. So hitting the ball, keeping the ball in play will uh, lead to scoring runs. And uh, that's what they have done. They've scored runs, they've scored runs, they've scored runs. This is uh, with having two of their uh, top four rotational pitchers uh, on the DL. So hopefully we'll get those guys back, and uh, we may see your Dodgers in the World Series. How would that be? Um, well, it'd be okay if they were playing my Red Sox. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't you so, have, can't transfer your allegiance to the Dodgers for the National League? Well, I can. I, I just think in that sense, I would jump on board uh, and, and support the standard bearer for the AL, even though some of us believe they still should be a National League team. Well, uh, and on, on this podcast, both of us believe that. Yes. So I want to be revisionist for a sec. All Go right. back in your, your uh, Mr. Peabody and Sherman way back machine. And weren't the Astros... Um, a, a bit of a laughing stock team. Somebody in Houston was criticizing the management people they were bringing in, uh, the smartest guys in the room, and, and sabermetrics. And was that only two or three years ago, or am I uh, getting foggy in the Wayback Machine? Well, I think you're getting a little foggy in the Wayback Machine, but we will note for the record that from 2011 to 2013, the Astros had the worst record in Major League Baseball. Over over 100 losses, uh, three consecutive seasons, 324 losses in the three-season span. What that did was it gave them the ability to have the number one draft pick or high draft picks in the Major League Baseball draft. It certainly brought um, uh, Korea to the team, and he is uh, one of five All-Stars. The Astros have the largest number of All-Stars in going into the All-Star game next week. Um, Carlos Correa. Jose Altuve was already on the team. He's uh, named to his fifth All-Star game. But the thing that uh, actually changed, Jay, was uh, in in addition to the uh, FUBAR's missteps and uh, idiotic pronouncements of the owner, uh, the new owner from that time frame, um, that the general manager, Jeff uh, Luno, um, really changed his strategy. And he had originally thought, 
that by taking uh, simply having his hitters go deep into the camp, they could wear pitchers down, and uh, they would utilize that. Um, but they had an acceptable amount of strikeouts, uh, believing that if you had contact with an acceptable number of strikeouts, uh, it would things would balance out. Well, what it turned out was uh, that uh, big hitters and big swingers who struck out a, a lot turned into rally killers. And that if you had uh, not so much uh, slap hitters, because the Astros are hitting lots of home runs, but if you had people that could put wood on, on the baseball, put bat on the ball, and get hits, you're going to score more runs. And if you cut down on the strikeouts, you won't have those rally-killing strikeouts. Uh, so they got rid of the, the um, uh, players who largely uh, were the strikeout problems and focused on people that uh, have contact with the ball. And that's really the change that they made in mid-course. Uh, that, that when they started out with uh, their, uh, it was uh, either funny or, or sad, I don't know which, but they quoted one of the players who was around in 2011 and um, uh, in an article I read, and he said it was like we were trying to find ways to lose. Well, boy, did they. So uh, they were a laughing stock. Um, but uh, they got a couple of high draft picks. Uh, Korea has been one, but Altuve was already there. And they changed course. And uh, whatever you might think of uh, the GM and his sabermetrics, he was uh, intelligent enough to realize that the data showed that he needed to go in a different direction, that what they do were doing was not working, and they made that course correction. And now they have the best record in baseball largely because of it. So can we make any uh – parallels between somebody following a plan that did not work and now changing the plan and now they're on course is there any potential that ISO 37001 could be a situation like that where again you're looking at certain uh, KPIs and certain metrics maybe if that program adjusts that can help companies uh, be successful like the Houston Astros are. Well, that's certainly one way uh, to consider it, but I think the the larger point I would draw, Jay, is that if you have newer additional data uh, and you don't change uh, your original answer or your original plan, uh, you're failing to use a tool, and you're probably going to fail because the new or different data might uh, lead you in a different direction. Certainly, you need the, the ability to monitor a uh, compliance program on an ongoing basis and use that information incorporated back into a continuous feedback loop to improve it. But if if facts on the ground change, if you uh, move into a new geographic area or you leave an old geographic area, that's going to change your risk profile. And having the ability to change your risk profile, it, that is more than a paper program. That's operationalizing your compliance program. And that's where you need to, to have your program, which is to, um, uh, as John Maynard Keynes said, the uh, famous British uh, economist, if the, if the facts change, I reserve the right to change my opinion. And when you change your risk profile, you need to adjust your compliance program accordingly. So that's really why a, a paper program doesn't get you there. You've got to have the ability to take new information and incorporate that into your uh, compliance program. If your risk profile changes, your risk management needs to change as well. Uh, I think that's well said, and uh, you know, I, I just put that out there for argument's sake. But um, it's nice to see 
the Astros performing at a high level. Um, and anything from a, a publishing and an everything compliance uh, perspective that you'd like to highlight today? Yes. We uh, released this week, Jay, our uh, second compilation of uh, every, the Everything Compliance uh, Four Amigos Plus One have put out uh, Trump and Compliance. The first 100 days is out. It was released on uh, my website, uh, www.fcpacompliancereport.com, available for download. It's also out on JD Supra. So uh, if you want to uh, read about the musings of uh, four of the top commentators in compliance, plus yours truly, check it out. It's a great uh, read. It's a great ebook. It It takes... Um, our individual, uh, what I did is I collected our individual writings, Jane, put it all in one book. Uh, so now we've got two ebooks out about uh, the Trump administration and compliance. We had uh, the first one, which was released uh, shortly after the, uh, the election, that it was not the apocalypse yet. Uh, and now we've uh, had a second release on the first hundred days. So we're continuing uh, to fulfill uh, Maurice Gilbert's challenge to us. Uh, to uh, quarterly report on the um, comings and goings of the Trump administration and the Sessions Justice Department around compliance. So I hope uh, folks will uh, check it out. It's Once again, it's available on uh, my website, uh, available for download free, and it's also available uh, today from uh, J.D. Super. So uh, I hope people will check it out. And uh, we're going to be recording another um, Everything Compliance podcast uh, next week, so we'll get it up uh, shortly. And we're going to mix it up a little bit. In, in the past, each of us has taken on a certain subject area to uh, speak about and then rant. But now we're going to do it as uh, a different approach. And we're going to do some uh, roundtable questions. So we're each uh, putting together some uh, things that we'd like to know from our other colleagues. And we'll be discussing that uh, later next week. And the podcast will be up in uh, probably, what, 10 to 15 days after that. Uh, certainly within a week. Within a week. Okay. So um, should I take it on? Take us on home? Take us home, Jay. All right. So on behalf of Tom Fox and Jay Rosen, we'd like to thank you for listening to the All-Star Break edition of the week that was an FCPA for the week ending July 7th, 2017. As always, thanks for listening and have a wonderful weekend. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you very much for listening to This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, please feel free to email them to me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com or jay at jrosen at Affiliated Monitors. Also, if you've listened to this podcast on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also get the word out about the only weekly review of all things FCPA and compliance related. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA, and I hope you'll join us again next week for another episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.